You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Would you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14? And if you don't have a Bible, you can reach in the seats in front of you and provide it with an opportunity to you to see... Oh, man, I'm derailing. (laughs) Mark 14 on page 851. You ever put yourself in someone else's shoes and see the experiences that they are going through and either have a positive or negative experience when you put yourself in their shoes? I've had this experience over the last year and a half with Sal Afaso. Many of you know Sal. Sal was an elder at our church for many years. His wife, Karen, faithfully served alongside him. In the fall of 2020, he was diagnosed with glioblastoma, and I had to research what that was. And I found out that that's not one of those diagnoses that you can look at and say, well, we caught it early, and you're going to have a full recovery. And I've watched Sal, as many of you have, over the last year and a half, and I've been amazed. As I put myself in his shoes, I think I would not handle it the way that he has. He handles it with grace. He handles it with faith. He has extreme resolve in his trust in God, not only that he could heal him, which of course our creator can, but what drives him and what fuels his resolve is that he is trusting that God will be who he says he is. And I put myself in Sal's shoes and I think I would probably be mad, I would probably be frustrated, I would even potentially be tempted to give up. So how does someone like Sal, who is the person who has the diagnosis, and not me, who's projecting myself with that diagnosis, continue faithfully the way that he does? And then there's the the negative concepts where we put ourselves in a higher regard. Think about David and Bathsheba. I was just reflecting on this this last week and thinking through David's life and where he stood on the tower in the roof and he saw the woman that was bathing and he took her for his own wife though she herself was married to another man and David made matters worse and had her husband executed and I've been tempted to think well I would never do that but I was reminded in a podcast this last week that had I been in David's shoes I would have not only done what David did but probably worse so, so how do we put ourselves in other people's shoes and agree with the humanity that they demonstrate, but be able to handle either a positive or a negative experience in a way that does not spiritually fail? How can we experience what Sal is experiencing and have the opportunity to succeed? How can we be in a situation like David with Bathsheba and avoid failing like he did? Well, the answer is in this passage. And we invite you to see the big idea in your notes. Desperation for the gospel is our only hope. There isn't a degree that we can achieve that guarantees we won't fail. There isn't an amount of church services that we can attend that will guarantee that we don't fail. There's not a personality that God can create us with that will ensure that we will not fail. The only hope for us to not spiritually fail is a desperation for the gospel. And we'll see that in four ways reflected in this passage. The first one is learn despite labor. Learn despite labor. Friends, you will be placed in an opportunity where your spiritual life can fail. 
How will you make sure that you do not fail? Well, the first is we learn despite the labor, and and we'll see that in this text. Look at verse 32. And when they, the disciples and Jesus, went to a place called Gethsemane. Now, we'll just stop there. I'll ask the team to put a slide up with some photos that I took in Jerusalem of what they believe to be the Garden of Gethsemane. There you can see a sign that in Latin says the Garden of Gethsemane. This area is filled with olive trees, and these olive trees, some scholars believe, were present at this very moment that Mark 14 unpacks. Olive trees can last for generations upon generations. It's a rather small area. In fact, you can see from the Garden of Gethsemane the Temple Mount, and so you can imagine this was an intimate location for Jesus and his disciples. It was a familiar one to the disciples. In fact, the other gospel writers tell us that Judas knew that Jesus would take his disciples there. It was a place to ponder, a place to reflect. Jesus left eight of his disciples to sit while Jesus went to pray. Verse 33 says he took Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now, let's just pause here. And say that if you had someone in your life that was extremely important to you, many of us have that. If you had somebody that you cared for deeply and they demonstrated to you that they were greatly sorrowful and distressed, if they told you that they were so sorrowful, it was almost to the point of death, don't you think that you would pray for them? It's interesting that Jesus gives them instruction. Look at the end of verse 34. He says, remain here, and look at what it says. Would you see it in the text? He says, watch. Back in chapter 13, in verse 37, Jesus said the whole point in his sharing the prophecy of the temple being destroyed and the assurance that he would come someday and set up his kingdom was so that they would watch. The word watch means to be in a state of continual alertness, to be continually on the alert, to be continually watchful. But but listen to this last phrase, to learn for the purpose of learning. We don't just have our eyes open. We're not just staying awake for the purpose of saying we stayed awake. We are staying alert and watchful for the purpose of learning. Now, teachers early on in our lives tell us that learning is fun. And it is fun in the early years, isn't it? As a kindergartner, they share with us picture books. Whatever happened to picture books? They give us snacks and they bribe us. They even give us naps in the middle of the day. Adults, wouldn't we love nap time? But but as we get older, we realize that learning is labor. Learning takes work. We start to be assigned an ungodly amount of reading materials. And as we open up the text for our test, we realize footnotes are important. And those long lectures when your eyes are heavy actually have words that are important. You see, the whole purpose of learning is to gain mastery over material. And Jesus tells his disciples exactly what the purpose of learning is. In fact, would you look down at the text in verse 37? He says, he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? It's interesting that he singles Simon out, isn't it? 
who was the one back in chapter 14 that we read a couple weeks ago who said, I will be loyal to you. I will defend you. I will stick with you to the death. And he says, ah, oh, Peter, you're asleep. He says to them, could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray. Stay alert for learning and pray. Commune with God so that, it's a hinna, a purpose clause, so that you may not enter into temptation. Now, the word temptation is an interesting one. It's the Greek word parosmos. It is translated some places tribulation, some places temptation, some places trials. The point is, is that it will be an opportunity for you to be tested. And what Jesus is not saying here is pray and watch and learn so that you can avoid parosmos. What he's saying is you will be parosmos. Make sure you don't derail. Make sure you don't fail. And the time to prepare for that is not when you are tested. How many of you tried that in high school? And how did that work for you? Well, I'll just wait till the test. Now, some of you were able to float by, but in life, that doesn't work. The time to prepare for a test is not when the test happens. The time to prepare for the test for you and for me is right now. It's when you're listening to a sermon that you write down notes, that you make marks in your Bibles, that you learn, that you prepare, because the test is coming. Your kids will test you. Your spouse will test you. Your job, your life circumstance, your health will test you. Getting older will test you. Life is about perosmos, and Jesus understood that. And what he's telling his disciples is, watch, be alert, and learn. You want to make sure that when that test happens in your life, which for some of you, it might be this afternoon. For some of you, it might be this week. For some of you, you're experiencing it right now. You want to make sure that in that moment of testing, you pass by revealing that you are an authentic follower of Christ, that you bring glory to Christ. You want to make sure that you arrive at that place and pass, learn, despite the fact that it is labor-intensive. Jesus comes to the disciples and finds three times that they are sleeping. He understands their humanity. He understands it's late at night. But he says to them in verse 41, it is enough. The hour has come. Friend, you will be tested. I will be tested. The way that we can ensure that the temptation does not derail us, the way that we can make sure that the trial does not derail us is that we learn despite the labor. Number two, we live despite the levy. Levy being tax or cost. The gospel is costly. There is a cost with the gospel I love what Mark includes here. He says in verse 43 that while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came. 
He says down in verse 49, this is all taking place so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Jesus is always in control. And guess what? He's in control of your test. There is no trial or test or perosmos that has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be perosmos beyond what you are capable of enduring by relying on the gospel. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Jesus is in control of our trials, of our temptations, and that is revealed here in the narrative of this text. But Jesus is constantly aware of our humanity and limitations. But listen to this. He expects us to live gospelly. The generation of those who lived during World War II is often referred to as the greatest generation. And when you start reflecting on what they had to go through, the Great Depression, World War II, the rebuilding after that aftermath, they went through a lot. And I remember talking to my grandparents who went through those experiences and asking them, how did you live despite what you had going on? And they said, well, we knew what we were supposed to do, and we just did it. And listen, friends, we do not live in that same kind of a culture today. Back then it was, we know how to live, and we just did it, no matter the circumstances. Today we say, we know how to live, but I have excuses, and you need to change your expectations of me. That is the world in which we live. And friends, Jesus, to his disciples, says, look, I know your eyes are heavy, but I still expect you to live gospelly. In fact, it says that the disciples did not know how to answer him. That phrase means they were ashamed. Jesus understands our humanity, but he expects us to live gospelly. And there's three opportunities for that in the garden arrest narrative. The first one is in verse 33. Judas came. Now, we know from the narrative, we know from the other Gospels that Judas had already collaborated with the religious leaders. They had given him 30 pieces of silver. They had agreed and entered into contract that Judas would betray Jesus. Judas is one of the 12. He was likely the only individual that could have arrived at Gethsemane where he knew Jesus would be, come up to Jesus without the other disciples thinking something weird is going on. Judas came up and gave him a kiss, which was the expression of family or close relationship. Judas called him rabbi. That is what the disciples called him. So this was an un- not an unexpected situation. But in that moment, Judas had the opportunity to pay the gospel levy. And the gospel levy for Judas was, I'm going to eat crow. <laughs> I'm going to have mud on my face. That as he embraced his rabbi, as he heard his voice, he had the opportunity to say, Jesus, I've sinned. Jesus, I've blown it. The crowd that is behind me is because of me. I'm going to stand with you despite my failure. That is what the gospel demanded. But Judas looked at the situation, and he refused to pay, and he betrayed Jesus. 
It says in verse 43 that there was a crowd with swords and clubs, and most likely this was a combination of both Jews and Romans. And look down at verse 48. Jesus asks the crowd, have you come out as against a robber? Would you, would you underline that word robber and, and write out to the side? I think this is a better translation. I think what Jesus was saying is, have you come out against me as an insurrectionist? And that's important for the historical context because remember, as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, Rome did not put up with insurrectionists. They would turn their eyes away from maybe a thief, a petty thief. They would turn their eyes away from other crimes, but not insurrection. Insurrection, the Romans would come in and swiftly and excessively deal with it. And what Jesus was saying here is you're coming out against me as though I'm an insurrectionist. So there must have been chaos. There must have been danger. There must have been violation. And it seems like the disciples are going to pay the levy of the gospel and be loyal to Jesus, doesn't it? Look at what it says. It says, verse 47, one of those who John identifies in his gospel as Peter drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Okay. The disciples appear that they're paying the levy of the gospel. They're, they're going to fight with Jesus. But the danger was too much. Look at verse 50. They all left him and fled. The disciples had the opportunity to pay the levy of the gospel and to live accordingly, but instead the violence and the threat was too great. And then I got to tell you, verses 51 and 52. When I read through the Gospel of Mark, knowing I would preach through this, I have to say I wanted to not be an expositor. I wanted to not be a preacher who preaches verse by verse because reading a Bible verse of somebody who was wearing a linen cloth with nothing else and ran away naked, I'm like, Mark, what are you doing here, bud? But listen, language is important. And while the Bible that we hold in our hands that is translated into English is the very word of God, the the original languages provide color. The original languages provide depth. And and that's what happens here. Because listen, the word translated linen cloth means a high quality, high value garment. And what's interesting about the word that's translated naked is, would you write these down? In Matthew 25, 36, Jesus says, I was naked and you clothed me. Interesting. Do you think Jesus is saying he walked around in the buck? No. James chapter 2 and verse 15, I believe it is, says that true disciples of Christ will see brothers and sisters, and it actually in the ESV translates it poorly clothed, and you will clothe them. Here's what Mark is saying, is that there was a young man, unidentified, no name is given, and he had a high value, high quality linen robe around him that was over poor clothing. It was over inadequate clothing. Maybe it had holes. Maybe it was too light for the weather. But he had something of high value that likely was given to him from a family member or it was an heirloom, but it was likely a precious gift. And so this young man had an opportunity. They seized him and he could have gone with them and paid the levy of the gospel and shown his loyalty to Christ. But instead, he left his highly prized linen cloth 
and ran away poorly clothed, demonstrating how significant the threat was. And so, instead of the young man paying the levy of the gospel, the violence and the threat were too much, and he fled. Friends, Jesus compels us even in our humanity. He compels us to live gospelly. In fact, let me put a couple of quotes up on the screen. The gospel promises tribulation but delivers true peace and satisfaction for those who patiently endure and respond in its power. Friends, this is what the gospel calls us to. The gospel says, listen, I am giving, I'm clearing off the lenses of your worldview. You don't live in fantasy world anymore. Life is trial. And listen, in that, I'm not trying to be Johnny Raincloud. I'm trying to share with you what you already know by looking at your life with gospel lenses. This is a life of trials. We live in a sin-cursed world. We live with sinners. We ourselves are sinners. The world system is antagonistically against Christ. This is a world of trials. But he doesn't leave us there. The gospel says he grants us endurance. He grants us true hope and true peace. He gives us the tools that we need to live in this trial-cursed world. But then here's another one. The gospel sees us where we are and calls us and equips us to where we need to be. I hear churches that really highlight the fact that, listen, Jesus sees you where you are, he meets you where you are, but some of those churches mean he'll adjust to you. That's kind of that mindset that I described of this culture. Well, listen, pastor, you don't know. My parents didn't love me. I'm not saying that for me. Some of you have experienced that. Pastor, you don't understand. I had abuse when I was a child. You don't understand about my spouse. You don't understand about my personality. You don't understand about my disorder. Listen, Christ does. And he calls us to live. He calls us to live out the gospel, and that means there will be cost. There will be a levy. And the examples that we see here demonstrate that God expects us to live despite the levy. Number three, loyal up despite loss. Loyal up despite loss. Mark provides another sandwich. Remember, in the Gospel of Mark, he'll give a start to a story, he'll go away from the story, and then he'll come back to the story. And he he does that with Peter. Peter and Jesus... And the guards and the religious leaders arrive at the home of the high priest. There's some photos I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. This is a reconstruction of Caiaphas' house on the left. It's a massive building for ancient standards. There were stairs that led up to the courtyard, and archaeologists believe these are the very steps that Jesus walked up for his trial. And then over here on the right is the statue of Peter with the rooster at the top. Most likely, he was there in that courtyard. This gives us the imagery for what is about to unfold. The gospel will mean 
loss. You can write down Matthew chapter 16, 25. We must lose our life to gain it. Romans 6, 22, we are freed from sin, but we become slaves to Christ. We've already seen this illustrated, but it bears repeating. Back in chapter 12, Jesus is watching people give tithes and offerings in the temple. And remember, there were those curly horns that the people would drop the coins in and would make sounds, ting, 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 and it would go down and rattle down. And Jesus is watching people give their tithes and offerings, and he says there's one group that he rebukes, there's another lady that he actually affirms. The group that he rebukes is the ones who were giving lots. The one that he affirms is the one who gave little. But listen, it's not about the what is given, it's about how it is given and why. See, the people who gave abundantly in that text gave out of their leftovers, demonstrating that they were more important, that their life was more important, but the woman gave of her first fruits, demonstrating Christ was what was most important. The gospel requires loss of self. It requires loss of us in the hierarchy. It requires sacrifice, but it is our joy to do that because it's for our God. That's the beauty of looking at life and saying it is a life of trial. Yes, but what a great honor it is to suffer like Christ. Amen? I know we don't usually say amen to that like we do, but whoo, yeah, it's a blessing. What a privilege it is that if God is ordained in our life to suffer persecution, that we do so in a way that brings him glory. The gospel requires and demands loss. But listen to what Jim Elliott said. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And there are three opportunities in this section for people to loyal up despite loss. The first one is in the council. We see in verse 53 that all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Later on, we see this is the council. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the supreme court of Israel. What they say goes, what they determine is law. And this council has the opportunity to loyal up to scriptures, to loyal up to Christ. But what happens is they bring in false testimony that will hopefully result in Jesus being condemned to death. And what happens is these false testifiers come in and they do actually share words that Jesus said, but they twist them. That's often what happens in false testimony, isn't it? People will share just enough truth of what is being said, but they will twist it to fit their narrative. They take things out of context. That's what happened here. And so the council is listening and all of these testimonies come and they don't match up and they're like, oh no, this isn't working out. And so finally, the high priest stands in the middle of all of them. He quiets them all down, and he points at Jesus, and he says, are you the Christ? It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Jesus' response is exactly what the high priest and everyone present needed. Verse 62, Jesus said, I am. I don't know if he intended this, but it's interesting. John has a bunch of I am statements. Maybe you've studied those before. 
And what's fascinating about the I am statements in the Gospel of John is that I think that they tie in to the Old Testament name Yahweh, I am. And here Jesus' response was likely Yahweh. He says, I am the Christ. And then he goes to that passage. By now, we should be familiar with Daniel 7, 13, and 14. It's fascinating to see how much the New Testament refers to Daniel 7, 13, and 14. We saw that last week in Revelation 1. And Jesus says to the high priest a phrase that they would have tied into Daniel 7, 13, and 14. They would have known that, the scribes, the elders, the religious leaders. He says, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven with power. They would have heard his claim. And they had the opportunity in that moment to loyal up and to say, we will lose our control, we will lose our pride, we will lose our status, and we'll come in behind you and loyal up because you are the son of man, but they don't. They condemn him to death. There's another individual who has an opportunity to loyal up, and that's our friend Peter. Man, Peter has a great start. Verse 54, he followed him at a distance. He's in the courtyard. He's actually there. And he's warming himself. It says he's warming himself in the fire. And, and there's guards around him. Most likely the very guards that were in the garden that took Jesus. So he's right there. But the problem is, is that a servant girl comes up and says, wait, 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 you're one of the 12. What does he do? He loyals up. Yes, I am. Take me. No, he doesn't. He faces the opportunity for loss, and instead he denies. Then the servant girl comes to him again and says, wait, wait, you're one of them. And now there's bystanders around, and now there's probably more attention being given. And Peter looks around, and he says, I am not. I don't even understand what you're saying. And then the bystanders speak up. And they say, hey, wait, 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 you are one of them because you're a Galilean. What's interesting is how Peter responds. He begins to invoke a curse. The translators say on himself. That's not in the Greek, so they made a decision. I think he actually gives a curse to the people that are making the statement. I think he actually tells them, one commentator says, you go to hell for what you're saying. I do not know this man. At that point, the rooster crows. And Peter has an opportunity. He realizes, verse 72, that Jesus had told him this would happen. And the phrase is very difficult to translate, but the last phrase likely means that he processed this and then he wept. He, he evaluated the situation. He evaluated his role in the situation. And his response was sorrow. Now, some of you might be in a situation right now where as you evaluate the word of God, you are exposed because you are not loyaling up. Maybe some of you have a little dirty secret on the side. Maybe it involves some of the images that you like to look at in your own personal time. Others of you might be entertaining relationships with someone that God would forbid. 
Others of you are practicing more religion than you are relationship. Whatever it is, maybe you find yourself like Peter, and as God's word is being preached, you are realizing, I'm not loyaling up, and you might be at a point where you are weeping, and at this point, we might think, without knowing the rest of the story, Peter's done. He's failed. He's damaged goods. Peter can't be used. But that brings us to the third person who had the opportunity to loyal up, and that's Jesus, Jesus himself. Jesus was presented with an opportunity. When the high priest said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed, he could have said, ah, no, you got me. And he wouldn't have been arrested, wouldn't have been executed, wouldn't have experienced gospel loss. But instead, he loyaled up to his father, didn't he? He loyaled up to the instruction that he had been given. He loyaled up to the mission, knowing that it would cost him his life, knowing that he would lose his life. He loyaled up. And friends, that is what we are called to do. Despite our humanity, despite our past, despite our personality, we are called to loyal up, and it will produce loss. But the only hope we have is what Jesus himself demonstrated, which is number four, lean despite liberty. Lean despite liberty. Let's go back to verse 36. Mark doesn't provide a whole lot of details about Jesus' prayer. If you want to read it more in depth, you can read John 17, one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. But what Mark does include is enough. Look at verse 36. Jesus is looking at what he knows is on the horizon, and he says, remove this cup from me. You see it in the text? In fact, literally in the Greek, it says, remove this, the cup. Remove this, the cup, my cup of suffering, what I know you have planned for me. And he gives an imperative, a command of the Father. He says, remove it. I, I, this is interesting. Don't, don't lose this. Because we know the rest of the story. We know the phrase that follows. But in this moment, understand the significance that the son is asking the father, he's begging him, he's imploring him, remove me from this. That's interesting. Do you know that this is appropriate for us as human beings? In fact, write down Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. We as humans are unique as compared to the rest of creation. We were made in the image and the likeness of God. We were made with the ability to discern between good and evil. We were made to have a conscience. We were made to be spiritual beings, to have a soul. And because of that, God has given us liberty to evaluate our lives and make decisions. He has given us the liberty to evaluate the scenarios and to make requests of the Father. That is an amazing liberty. But friends, when we do that, what is our motivation? It's usually two things. And most of us fall into the first category because as human beings and as Americans, we are tempted to be motivated by self we are to be motivated by, hey, I've got this. I can do this. Yes, I've struggled with this sin in the past, but you know what? I got this. 
The Bible has not given us an opportunity to live out the gospel on an island. The gospel reminds us every moment of every day we are not to lean on our own understanding. In fact, the wisest man who ever lived said this to all humankind, do not lean on your own understanding. So friend, when you are praying to God, what is the motivation? We are to give our requests. We can implore our God. We can say, give us this. That is our liberty. And I think too many of us, because we know the second motivation, come to our God with these kinds of requests. Maybe could you possibly, if you think about it, if you feel good about it today, if it's a good day for you, God, you know, I'm humbled to be able to ask this. And it's like, come on, spit it out already. We are given the liberty to make requests of the God of the universe, sovereign God, creator God, do it. But what is your motivation? And the correct motivation is modeled by Jesus. And it begins at the beginning of verse 36. And he said, Abba. The name Abba is literally the translation of the Aramaic. Some scholars and pastors, I've heard this before, say that what Jesus is saying here is daddy. That's not what he's saying. The name Abba is actually an incredible revelation of Jesus understanding God's character. It is a hybrid term. On one side, Abba means he is absolute sovereign in authority. On one side, it is an understanding that God is ordaining every circumstance of our lives. But it's also a hybrid that understands he cares for us. That's amazing. That the God of the universe, who Psalm 115.3 says, is in, his, in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That Job 42.5 says, no one can thwart your will. That is God. That is Abba, who also cares for us. Wow. The fact that Jesus addresses his God as Abba is an exposition of God's character. And friend, when you go to the Father, addressing him as Abba, understanding this hybrid, it puts you in the right position to make your request, doesn't it? But he doesn't just say Abba, he also says Father. That is a term of intimacy, of relationship. It is an understanding that this is not about religion. It is about relationship. And in order to be able to address him as father, you must have a relationship with him. And a relationship is not a past transaction that stays there. It's a past transaction that opens up the door for active communion. And so Jesus is in a place in Gethsemane that before he even gets to the liberty of his request, he's turning his attention on the theology of God, the character of God, the hybrid of God, the relationship that he has. And then he says, remove this cup. That's how our prayer should look. But then he comes to the back end of it, and I love the Greek. Oh, it's so awesome here. There's emphatic contrast. Jesus gives an imperative. He says, God, Father Abba, remove this, the cup. This is what I want. This is what I believe is best, but not. Did you notice how I raised my voice and I clapped? That's trying to communicate what in the English appears to just be connectors. 
Jesus makes his request, but then he gives an emphatic capital B, capital U, capital T. But, and then an emphatic not, but not. Here's my request. I think this is what is best, but not my will, yours be done. That's it. This is Jesus living out Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean. Do not put the weight on your own understanding. Do not think of yourself more highly than what the gospel thinks of you. Do not think that you can do this on your own. Do not think you can get the diagnosis of glioblastoma and think, well, you know what? I've been in Christ for a long time. I got this. Do not think you can put yourself in a position of temptation and think, well, I got this. No, we are desperate for the gospel. And friends, unless we are leaning on that gospel, putting our full weight on that, then we will be like Judas, we will be like the Sanhedrin, we will be like Peter, we will be like the young man with the high-value linen. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Friends, we will be tested. Life is a life of testing. This passage is intended to give us what we need to not fail. This is the cheat sheet. And the opportunity is yours and it is mine to learn, to live, to loyal up, to lean. But friends, you can't even begin to apply this unless you are in relationship with the God of the universe, not through your righteousness, but the completed work of Christ. Have you ever started that? Have you ever owned that you are a sinner? Have you ever owned that you're incapable of doing anything that will please God on your own and humbled yourself Trusting in Christ's completed work, turning from your sin, and surrendering to him as Lord. If not, would you do that right now? Please, I beg you. You can't do this alone. And then, Christian, listen, maybe some of you are living with too much confidence in yourself. Or maybe you're living in a state of defeat. I can never be faithful. Friends, the common denominator between Sal and David is our humanity and our desperate need for the gospel. It was modeled by Christ positively and modeled by the others negatively. But the glorious reality of Peter's story is that it didn't end there. In fact, the gospel of John uses the same term for the fire where Peter warmed himself as the fire where Jesus was cooking the fish and restored him to ministry. Friends, the gospel is our hope. We are desperate for it. Let's make sure that we're recalibrating and leaning on it and not our own understanding.